Okay, Recording. Go ahead, Jack. Okay. Sorry for the uh, lateness. I was making myself a cup of tea. I thought I was well ahead of schedule, but there we are. Okay. So I'm going to limit um, what I'm going to say this week deliberately. So I'm not missing out uh, things because I haven't noticed things. So I'm going to concentrate on um, Batley and Spa, the Spin. Batley and Span. Uh, thank you. Spa, Batley and Span uh, by-election um, to begin with. As you know, that's uh, July the 1st. That's uh, not long off. Uh, the basic outline is pretty clear. The previous Labour um, sitting MP stepped down because she was elected a, a mayor. And um, given the cracks in the red wall, um, the um, Labour Party HQ and Keir Starmer basically chose uh, Kim uh, Leadbeater. Uh, why? not because of her outstanding politics or her, um, how should we put it, mass base uh, locally, uh, but uh, because she would come over as inoffensive, local, she is local, but above all, her main recommendation is, of course, that she's the sister of Saint uh, Joe Cox, uh, the Labour martyr uh, who was um, killed killed by a far-right uh, Brexit uh, supporter. Um, well, there are the plans. And the last and only um, opinion poll that at least I've seen, and I think it's the only one because uh, it keeps being quoted, uh, is the one from a couple of weeks ago, uh, which uh, shows the Tories on 47 uh, percent, Labour uh, on 41 percent and George Galloway standing as a Workers' Party of Britain uh, candidate is on 6 uh, percent. So, you know, you don't need to be a genius to add 41 percent together with 6 percent to make it 47 percent. And that is sort of the story so far of this uh, uh, by-election. Um, as I understand it, the, the main tactic of the Tory party um, is to keep their mouths shut. So instead of going to hustings, instead of, um, you know, um, loud speakering and uh, getting out there and mixing with the electorate, uh, the basic um, approach is to keep your mouth shut while uh, the Labour Party is divided and the Labour vote uh, crumbles because of Brexit uh, and George Galloway. Now, the majority, clear majority in Batley and Spen voted in the 2016 referendum for Brexit. And there you are, Keir Starmer, a definite anti-Brexit uh, with his candidate. Um, and uh, there's George Galloway, um, pro-Brexit uh, and crucially, appealing to the considerable uh, Muslim community in Batley and Spa. So hence, um, you know, Palestine uh, is a real issue um, on the doorstep. Uh, 
And of course, um, we all know uh, that a senior Labour source being interviewed by, of all papers, the, um, the Mail on Sunday uh, was reported as saying along these lines that Labour, Labour vote is hemorrhaging because of Keir's um, stance on uh, anti-Semitism. Um, and I suspect that that's true. Just a couple of points on that, of course. First of all, the Mail on Sunday might not seem a natural paper for um, a senior Labour source to be interviewed, but I can't remember his name, uh, but uh, he turns out, the editor turns out to be the um, son of uh, Glenda Jackson and describes himself as a tribal Blairite, uh, whatever that um, uh, is. So he's got contacts in the uh, leadership of the Labour Party. Um, either way, um, if you take this senior Labour source, um, you could, as I say, just take it as a simple statement of fact, or you could take it and given uh, present discourse in the Labour Party, if you stand for Palestinian rights, it would appear uh, that we are, and they are out there in Batley and Spen, they are anti-Semites. Either way, um, if you take the Labour Party, clearly, uh, you know, you cannot, in that sense, placate one community uh, without offending uh, an another uh, community. Uh, we also have uh, the story um, of um, Kim uh, Leadbeater being heckled and uh, chased uh, to her car. I'd actually call it followed myself. Um, the fact that this is a story is quite remarkable. Um, I mean, in politics, one, you know, especially in a by-election, one should expect to be heckled. It, it's, a, it's a normal part of politics but instead in this present uh, climate it gets turned into almost and i'm sure that's the intention of the um uh, spin doctors into a rerun of the killing of a sister um so all someone has to do is raise uh, lesbian and uh, gay rights uh, raise the question of palestine follow her down the road and it almost becomes as i said uh, uh, a murder uh, attempt rather than uh, the robust politics that one expects in any election, let alone a by-election. As it turns out, this uh, person who was heckling wasn't a supporter of uh, George Galloway, as alleged, but turns out to be someone who has been engaged in those sort of politics in Birmingham, uh, where, if you recall, uh, there were protests outside schools uh, around the question of sex. Um, education. And interestingly, with Galloway, uh, what we've got here is someone who makes, you know, some, um, how should you put it, uh, um, notice uh, of his uh, Catholic upbringing, his Catholic uh, beliefs, and therefore, when it comes to social issues, his conservatism. So he's opposed to abortion. And uh, he also makes something about uh, the question of gay rights, um, lesbian rights, transgender rights uh, from the conservative uh, viewpoint. Therefore, um, he's able to, in that sense, appeal to a community that would have uh, conservative views on those questions. OK, so let's just deal with George Galloway. Um, 
George Galloway, from my memory, was born in 1954, so he's in his uh, mid to late 60s now and has been in politics a long, long time. Um, he's been a sort of, I don't know, a Labour Stalinite, uh, but of a, a Stalinite of a particular sort that happens to be a Catholic, not impossible, but hey, there you are. Um, so in terms of his book, which I did look at um, several years ago, I admit, called Imagine, he does describe the collapse of um, the Soviet Union in 1991 as the worst year politically uh, in his life. This was a real political blow uh, to George Galloway. Um, and he's written since, you know, in terms of his admiration for Fidel Castro, this is where he's coming from. Um, and that explains uh, why uh, when it came to the Iraq war, uh, he opposed um, uh, Tony Blair and uh, George Bush's drive to overthrow Saddam Hussein. Uh, we all remember the interview between George Galloway and Saddam Hussein. Um, you know, when uh, Galloway, I know he denies it, but basically expressed his admiration uh, for Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein, of course, the leader of the Iraq Ba'ath Party, a party of Arab nationalism, but an Arab nationalism uh, that uh, was very closely modelled um, on Stalin's um, Soviet uh, Union. And of course, George Galloway was expelled uh, from the Labour Party because of his opposition uh, to the Iraq war uh, and his um, branding of the war as illegal and therefore his call uh, for British soldiers to actually disobey orders. Um, this was too much uh, for Tony Blair and he was given the boot in revenge. And I have to say that uh, I was delighted um, 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 in the result in 2005 George Galloway didn't stand in Scotland but stood in uh, Bethnal Green and Bow a very um, you know very large uh, Bangladeshi Bengali um, uh, population and won won the seat um, and I think he defeated what was it uh, Una King uh, in that election, and then went on in 2012 uh, to score a, a similar uh, victory in Bradford West. Um, again, quite remarkable. You have to say that George Galloway is a extraordinarily uh, talented uh, politician. He knows uh, how to target um, certain sections of the population, in particular given his Catholicism and his Stalinism, it's interesting, isn't it? Particularly the Muslim uh, uh, population. It cannot be said that George Galloway has got a grand strategic vision. Um, you know, is he committed to changing the Labour Party? Well, that seemed to be the case uh, um, under uh, Jeremy Corbyn, not that he was let back in uh, um, to the Labour Party. Um, is his plan to build an alternative party? If so, was it respect? That didn't seem to have much uh, going for it. Um, is it the Workers' Party? Well, of course, if you go back to respect, respect was a popular front 
based on the Socialist Workers' Party doing most of the work, uh, but also uh, the Muslim Association of Britain, MAB, which is the British branch of the Muslim uh, Brotherhood, but also uh, Asian businessmen. I'm, I remember the Weekly Worker um, interviewed one of their respect candidates up in Birmingham, and uh, the comrade who was doing the interview uh, asked their candidate who was boasting about uh, how rich um, his dad was and how much of Birmingham he owes. And he said, well, what do you think of trade unions? And uh, the respect candidate replied, I think trade is a jolly good idea, um, which gives you an idea of the nature of respect. And just to sort of underline the point uh, about the politics of um, uh, popular fronts inside respect. The SWP rejected republicanism because it could put off royalist voters. It voted against a woman's right to choose to have an abortion uh, because, of course, that would put off potential voters. It voted against open borders, um, i.e. the free movement of people. This is stuff it's committed to and it's what we stand for a column. Uh, and it actually uh, also, of course, voted down secularism, because uh, apparently that would also put off a potential uh, uh, voters. Um, either way, uh, if we look at respect, we know uh, it uh, busted apart. Uh, the SWP split, you know, complaining of being witch hunted, absolute rubbish. Um, you know, what respect was an illustration of is it George Galloway understood um, the Bengali and um, the Muslim uh, community far better than John Rees. And uh, he knew how to operate with these people. John Rees considered these people to be political simpletons. They are far from that. It was John Rees that was a political simpleton. And it was George Galloway, the sophisticate, when it comes to certain sections uh, of the population. Okay, so that project failed. Uh, what do we then have? Well, we have, as I said, the Workers' Party of uh, Britain. Well, just to go back a little bit um, um, on that question, it's necessary to mention, uh, as I've already done, um, Galloway's opposition to um, British membership of the EU, EEC, whatever the hell it was called in various manifestations, that goes back to his origin. And there's nothing unusual about that on the Labour left. That was the position traditionally of official communism uh, in Britain, which talked about uh, Britain becoming a colony um, you know, of uh, the EU and other such nonsense along those lines. But in 2016, uh, George Galloway aligned himself with um, Nigel Farage, and that was true also uh, when it actually came to the Brexit party in the EU elections. And George Galloway not only turned up on a Brexit party platform, uh, but urged people uh, to vote Brexit. You go, wow, that's crazy. And what was crazier, and um, I didn't realize the significance of it at the time, is an organization with a similar name to ourselves, Communist Party of Great Britain, but with a suffix, Marxist-Leninist, 
um, also lined up and called for a vote for the Brexit party. So it wasn't just the former uh, left-wingers of uh, the Revolutionary Communist Party, uh, which now go by the name of Spiked. Uh, it was uh, this CPGBML that also called people uh, to vote uh, for Nigel Farage's party. And then, lo and behold, um, I can't remember the exact date. We actually wrote about it in the Weekly Worker, though, so you can look it up. What we found is this uh, new party being formed called the Workers' Party of Britain, led by George Galloway, uh, but with um, the uh, deputy leader being one Jyoti Bra. Now, that might mean nothing to a lot of people, but of course, Jyoti Bra is the loyal daughter of the founder uh, of the Communist Party of Great Britain, Marxist Leninist one Harpal Bra. Um, whose most notable contribution to politics, and I'm not saying this in any Saki uh, fashion, is upholding the memory um, of uh, Joseph Stalin uh, and championing, um, you know, North Korea, China, Zimbabwe, um, who are under attack uh, for imperialism. And I mean, I remember particularly um, Harpal Bra. Why? Uh, because back when I was becoming um, uh, political and I wanted to read Stalin, you had no internet in those days. The official communists, uh, you know, having worshipped Stalin, made him into a, a, a non-person. And to read Stalin, I actually had to go uh, to an organisation that was publishing um, Stalin uh, that was led by one Harpal Bra. Hence, I knew of this guy. Um, he lived in a town called Hemel Hempstead, and uh, I actually uh, came across him. I've debated with Harpal Bra, uh, and I have to say uh, that in terms of the people I've debated with, you know, given his uh, training as a lawyer, uh, he was a capable uh, debater and actually mastered his subject. He knew what I was talking about, knew what I was arguing, and except for a couple of points that he got wrong and graciously accepted uh, that I got that wrong, um, was an honest uh, opponent. Um, so, you know, um, um, here's someone who's capable um, with utterly different politics, I have to say, uh, other than myself. But what we had is the coming together of these um, CPGBMLers uh, with uh, George Galloway on an anti-EU um, pro-Brexit uh, position, a position that, um, it, you know, would um, um, encompass uh, voting for a far right wing party, which, of course, is what Brexit was in spite of uh, uh, a couple of smatterings of former left wingers uh, amongst its uh, candidates and also an organization uh, that, of course, not only champions um, socialism in one country, uh, i.e. a program that you can build socialism um, on a national basis, but also an organization that adheres to um, social conservatism. And um, if you think about it, you think about um, China today or um, North Korea, um, that's not surprising. Uh, these are not uh, societies that uh, promote gay rights or lesbianism and, uh, you know, uh, the free press. Um, so you're dealing with um, 
you know, um, Stalinism, uh, but of a modern um, sort and of a particular sort. Um, and so this is what uh, the Labour Party is uh, up against. Uh, and it's interesting that it's found um, some attraction um, in um, Batley and um, um, Spen. OK, let's just add another uh, question in here uh, that, um, you know, flagged uh, this by-election uh, to my uh, attention. And that's the statement that was issued by the Labour Campaign for Free Speech. Um, and basically what it said is because of this um, statement uh, that I quoted from the Mail on Sunday by a senior Labour spokesperson, plus um, Kim uh, Leadbeater's, um, how should you put it, mm, how should you put it, dilute, um, you know, thin uh, uh, politics, um, that um, this campaign uh, would not be supporting um, uh, a vote for Labour um, in this by-election. Well, OK, so th the question comes up, what are they calling for then? Are they calling for a vote for George Galloway's party? I don't know. If you were, you should say so. Um, are they calling for a vote for Mike Davis? Some people might have heard of him. Um, he's the leader of the, is it the Red-Green Alliance? I think that's, or is it the Alliance for Red-Green Socialism? The Alliance for Red-Green Socialism. He's a... Um, in, in terms of his origins, he's a um, Trotskyist that goes way back. And I think he was part of the Socialist Alliance uh, when we were uh, part of it. Either way, uh, we don't get anything. So are the comrades calling for an abstention? Are they calling for an active boycott? Are they calling for a vote for um, George Galloway? Are they calling for a vote for Mike Davis? Well, clearly they're not calling for a vote for, um, you know, the far right uh, candidates. They're not calling for a vote for the Liberal Democrat uh, uh, candidate. So what's their position? Well, I, I don't know. And you have to say about this campaign, it really does put its um, title uh, into self-doubt because uh, we're just about to have a debate, another debate uh, in this campaign, whether it stands for freedom of speech or does it stand for freedom of speech. But, well, from our point of view, freedom of speech is freedom of speech. And we stand for unrestricted uh, uh, freedom of speech. We don't want the government um, interfering with what we can hear, what we can read. Uh, we believe our ideas are right. We believe that our ideas can uh, triumph over wrong ideas. Um, so, you know, it, it's not that that's the only weapon uh, we believe in politics, but it is a crucial weapon uh, in our view. You know, the right to publish uh, the right to argue and the right to argue in a robust way. And that would include heckling and even following a candidate down the road demanding uh, uh, an answer. Uh, we don't view that as beyond the pale. We don't view that as, uh, you know, the equivalent of assassination. We don't view that as criminal. We view that as normal politics. And uh, the weekly worker is characterized by honest and I would hope robust. Uh, a debate. But uh, when it comes to the Labour campaign for free speech, um, they're actually quoting in one of their positions that they passed uh, this notorious 
um, Supreme Court judge in the United States, Wendell Holmes, if my memory serves me right. He's the guy that upheld the imprisonment of Eugene Debs and Socialist Party militants in World War I who opposed American entry uh, um, into World War I. And amongst his judgments um, on the likes of Eugene Debs, the leader of the Socialist Party of America, their presidential candidate, who I still think maybe Bernie Sanders, you know, has come near in terms of a, a mass base, but he had a mass base in the uh, working class in America. He was imprisoned, I think, for something like eight years uh, for his anti-war agitation. And in the judgment in the Supreme Court, we had this quote about the cinema. You cannot shout fire in a cinema. Now, we agree with that. But this was the judgment of Wendell Holmes. To quote that in a Labour campaign for free speech is either profound ignorance uh, or, or what? I don't know. But it quite frankly takes my uh, uh, breath uh, away. As I said, a notorious case uh, against one of the heroes uh, of the American left who was resisting uh, the imperialist war and was imprisoned uh, as a result of it. Okay, and then we have the Labour side uh, of, the, of this campaign. Well, a Labour campaign that refuses to support a weak candidate uh, and um, um, because of the um, statement by a senior um, Labour politician, which can be, and um, you know, I'm not going to argue with it, can be interpreted uh, along the lines of saying that 6% of the um, people surveyed in uh, Batley and uh, Spen are anti-Semites. I, I can interpret it. It that way. After all, those that are being purged, uh, those that are being witch hunted today in the Labour Party are being charged with being anti-Semites, where in reality what they are is anti-Zionists. And I well understand why people um, from um, um, Southern Asia who are Muslims um, or Kashmiri uh, would have sympathy and feel solidarity. Uh, with the Palestinian uh, population whose land is being taken away uh, by a colonial settler project um, on the basis of European guilt uh, about the Holocaust, plus, of course, um, the interests of various imperialist powers who've acted as Israel's uh, sponsor. You know, first of all, in terms of that particular project, of course, it was British imperialism, uh, the Balfour uh, Declaration, uh, then it was French uh, uh, imperialism um, in the 1960s. It was France, after all, that supplied the technology uh, that led to the undeclared um, um, Israeli nuclear arsenal. And then I think I've been told um, um, after the Six Day War, or maybe it was during the Six Day War, Either way, in the late 60s, early 70s, it was the United States that took over from France as the main imperial sponsor uh, of Israel, its unsinkable aircraft carrier uh, in the Middle East. Here was a regime uh, that you could rely on. Here's a regime that didn't sit atop, um, you know, a, 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 um, a volcano of discontent uh, that could blow up and uh, go in a completely different direction 
almost overnight and you know i.e egypt or saudi arabia or iran uh, comes to mind here were unstable regimes where israel whatever prime minister they happen to have here is a zionist regime here is a settler regime that can be relied on uh, uh, as an ally because it needs uh, an outside sponsor either way uh, the point would be about the labor campaign for free speech is if we look back at the history of the Labour Party to its very origins, what candidates can we seriously talk about who took a principled uh, position, a principled anti-imperialist uh, position? Well, you'd have to say, in all honesty, very, very few. You know, you might want to quote Keir Hardy and his social pacifist um, opposition to World War One. OK, you know, if you're pushing it, you could quote uh, Ramsey MacDonald, who resigned from his, well, who was resigned from his golf club uh, as a result of his social pacifist opposition uh, to World War One. You could quote, and I'd say that's much more legitimate, uh, the CPGB Labour uh, MPs, either MPs who are elected as Labour candidates or candidates who are elected as communist MPs, but with the support of the local constituency uh, Labour Party, they would be people you could quote. You might at a stretch, and again, I'm quite prepared to do that, you know, look at um, Militants 3 uh, MPs. They were clearly um, honest class fighters in spite of Militants um, Clause 4, Reformist Socialism. You know, you might want to pick out a couple of other individuals but the truth is uh, that Labour Party richly deserved uh, Lenin's uh, designation as a bourgeois workers party a workers party sociologically because of its voting base and its um, organizational links to the trade unions but politically it's a bourgeois party it's always been pro-imperialist it's been pro the British Empire um, as to capitalism Precisely, Clause 4 uh, is not a socialist Clause 4. Uh, it's a state capitalist formulation. It's borrowed from LaSalle. It's the most un-Marxist uh, uh, definition of socialism uh, that was available uh, to Sidney Webb. And it assumes in Clause 4 the continuation of wage slavery. Uh, I say no more. Uh, as to pro-Zionism, uh, we note... Uh, the affiliation of Paul Zion, what is now called the Jewish Labour Movement. I can't remember the date that it affiliated. Was it 1924? Comes to mind. Either way, it's a long time affiliate. And the point would be uh, that the Labour Party was sympathetic throughout its history to the Zionist project of establishing a colony in um, British Mandate Palestine. Indeed, to the point of where, from my memory, in terms of my political life, you had, um, you know, um, good left wingers like Tony Benn uh, being members of Labour Friends of Israel. So in terms of what we see at present, in terms of the Labour Party, it's horrible. It's foul. I agree uh, uh, with all of the um, disgust about just parachuting in a semi-political a candidate uh, whose main recommendation uh, is that she's the sister uh, of someone. I agree 
that the senior Labour politician could easily, consciously uh, being, you know, um, um, what's the word, um, slurring um, 6% of the population or the voting population of Batley and, and Spen. I, I readily accept that. But if, if you're a Labour campaign uh, for free speech, one, you should stand for free speech, but also surely uh, you should actually put the Labour Party, you know, almost by definition, at the heart of your activity. And surely the point is to win freedom of speech in the Labour Party. Certainly in the CPGB, uh, the reason why we would call, not as a matter of principle, but a matter of strategy, uh, a vote for that horrible uh, Labour candidate on July the, 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 the 1st is because of our strategic perspective of winning the Labour Party uh, to be a united front of a special kind, which is what it was designed for uh, in 1900. Uh, a party that has the trade unions affiliated to it, that has the co-op affiliated to it, but also has socialist organisations uh, affiliated to it, namely in 1900, the Independent Labour Party, the Fabians and the um, British um, Social Democratic Federation that went on uh, to become the British Socialist Party, that went on uh, to become the Communist Party uh, of uh, Great Britain. We want the present left uh, to be affiliated to the Labour Party. We want a Marxist leadership um, uh, of uh, that Labour Party. So we don't rule out not voting for Labour. If there was an organisation uh, that had, um, how should you put it, uh, tendencies within it uh, that uh, headed towards a communist party, a mass communist party, uh, then we would very seriously uh, consider voting uh, uh, for such a party. But we cannot say that in all honesty uh, about uh, George Galloway's Workers' Party of Britain. And we cannot say that uh, about uh, Mike Davis's uh, Alliance for Green Socialism. Uh, the, the, these are um, sects um, or cults um, go, go nowhere um, um, organizations. They are dead ends. Um, so yes, we would have supported, we did support um, the Socialist Alliance because we thought uh, and fought for it to have a partyist um, um, direction. Um, it was the SWP uh, that blew that up uh, for the sake of establishing uh, respect. Anyway, uh, there are serious questions, as I said, uh, over this uh, Labour campaign uh, for free speech. Does it stand for free speech? Does it stand for a Labour campaign? What the hell um, um, is it? It seems to me to be a strategically disorientated uh, response uh, to um, uh, this particular uh, campaign. And um, that doesn't bode well uh, for its future. Let's hope uh, that uh, the rank and file uh, correct uh, its leadership's uh, mistake. Okay, so I think I've dealt with that, and it's 37, so I'm going to speed up. I'll very, very briefly just mention a couple of other uh, points. Black Sea, um, Royal Navy, provocation, dangerous uh, provocation. Was this, um, you know, um, 
pile of documents that were found on a bus stop in Kent. Was that a, 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 a leak? Um, you know, uh, because of Britain's provocation, apparently this was um, found or put there before uh, this this ship sailed into, um, I'll just call it Crimean waters uh, uh, for the moment. But clearly, uh, the, the, you know, this wasn't a NATO action. This doesn't seem to have been um, uh, an American-sponsored um, action from, from what I can gather. Um, this seems to be, um, you know, um, post-Brexit GB2 British Empire, um, you know, global Britain uh, pretensions. And uh, quite frankly, uh, Britain without the United States is no military power. And, um, you know, I'm not saying Russia is any longer uh, a great power, uh, but compared with Great Britain, um, you know, this is a very dangerous uh, game uh, to play. So um, uh, I think a, a pretty crazy uh, piece of uh, theatre that could easily have triggered something very serious and very regrettable. OK, just again, a very quick um, couple of remarks. Hungry Victor Orban, uh, the anti, and that's what it is, LB, LGBT, uh, legislation in um, Hungary that uh, people who are under 18 can't be taught uh, about homosexuality and gay relationships and uh, all the rest of it. And the uproar, uh, welcome uproar uh, against it, you know, from uh, football associations, from um, commentators, from governments, from the EU bureaucracy. And isn't it interesting just to think back to Britain uh, under the Thatcher government, Clause 28, and very similar uh, legislation being passed uh, in Britain. It shows you uh, how things change. Uh, and of course, what's happened is much uh, against uh, left discourse back in the um, 1960s, 70s, and 80s. Um, Far from gay rights, um, you know, running counter uh, against capitalism, what capitalism has found it can do, at least dominant liberal capitalism, is adopt this cause as their own, colonize it, take it over and use it against their conservative um, opponents. And that, that is conservatives, both from countries like Hungary, uh, but also of course, against regimes such as uh, Putin and uh, anywhere else they happen uh, to come across. Okay, lastly, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time um, on this, but I'll be as brief as I can. Um, July the 1st is not only a by-election day uh, in Britain, in, in Yorkshire, it's also the official anniversary of the founding of the Communist Party of China. Its official founding was July the 1st, even though its first national congress um, was over the, uh, I think it was over a week uh, from July the 23rd, something like that. That's my memory. Uh, it began in Shanghai on land and I had to transfer to some riverboat or some um, coastal boat. This is in French. Um, Shanghai. Uh, that's 19, 
1921. Uh, and of course, the founding members of the Communist Party, 50 in number, uh, now number 91 million. And of course, are the is the leading party in the People's Republic of China, the most populous country in the world, uh, with the second largest economy, the world's largest export uh, economy. And depending on who you want to believe in terms of projections, certainly if we do draw a straight line, is destined uh, to become the leading um, in terms of uh, GDP size. Uh, economy in about 10 years time or whatever. And again, some people argue on the basis of you know, um, exchange rates uh, that it already is. But in serious terms, uh, of course, it's still considerably behind uh, the United States, except to say that, of course, it's gone uh, from being in 1949. Yes, after devastating civil war uh, and revolution, and imperialist invasion. It's gone from being one of the poorest countries uh, in the world uh, to now uh, ranking uh, amongst the middle countries, but with clear, because of its uh, uh, the strength of the state, but with clear ambitions uh, to actually become an advanced uh, country. Okay, so what was the Communist Party of China? Well, uh, here, here was the Bolsheviks, and uh, they uh, not only banked on um, revolution in Germany, in terms of their global strategy, one um, arm of it uh, was to uh, provoke, to encourage uh, national liberation movements, particularly in the East. Uh, that meant uh, British India, uh, but it also meant uh, uh, China and uh, Comintern agents were sent out and found a ready reception in, in China. Um, so although it only began uh, with 50 members, it was soon uh, growing in leaps and bounds. And um, the Communist Party uh, uh, joined and formed the left wing of the Guomintang, the KMT, uh, led by Sun Yat-sen, who's still viewed um, as a, a sort of um, a state founder uh, by the People's Republic of China. I've not been there, but if you go to um, Tiananmen Square um, on one building, you have a huge portrait of Mao Zedong. Um, on the other side, you've got a huge portrait of Sun Yat-sen. Um, um, Suffice to say in 1927, uh, the successor of uh, Sun Yat-sen, that's Ken Chai-shek, turned um, on the Communist Party, massacred, massacred the communists in um, Shanghai. I don't know how many thousands were killed, but thousands upon thousands, and proceeded to do that uh, attack um, on the Communist Party uh, uh, throughout uh, Kuomintang-controlled uh, China. Um, as a result of that, um, the Chinese Communist Party evolved uh, in a very peculiar uh, direction. Having been a urban party, having been a proletarian uh, party, uh, its cadre were sent out to the countryside. And it's worth noting, I, I think in my copy of uh, Mao Zedong's selected works that I've got on my bookshelf, one of the early uh, Mao Zedong uh, works, 
is his report on the peasant situation in Hunan. I'm not quite sure what the date of that was, uh, but basically what he was urging is at least an orientation to the countryside. Now, of course, we all know that the Bolsheviks had an orientation uh, to the countryside. Uh, the, you know, the, the Russian Revolution was described by Lenin not as a proletarian revolution, but as a bourgeois revolution or as a peasant revolution. And the bourgeoisie that he was talking about were the peasants, the vast majority of the country. But this bourgeois revolution, this peasant revolution in the Bolshevik strategy was going to be led by the working class party. Now, that did not mean that the Bolshevik party went out to recruit a mass base um, amongst the peasantry. It recruited and was willing to recruit agricultural laborers, uh, but it did not have a program of going out to the countryside and transforming uh, the Bolshevik party into a people's party. Uh, that was the socialist revolutionaries. They were a people's party, had a, a base in the cities, yes, but fundamentally uh, were a peasant uh, uh, party. The Bolsheviks remained an urban party, remained a proletarian party, whereas if you look at uh, the Chinese Communist Party, it evolved uh, in the direction of becoming a peasant party, and certainly with the establishment of the was it Red Army, they called it at the time, what became the People's Liberation Army, uh, what you had uh, is a peasant um, um, army uh, fighting a combined war, fighting a combined war, one against the Japanese invaders, and in spite of Mao's rhetoric, uh, also against the KMT. Um, so the rhetoric was anti-Japanese. The reality was you fought on you fought both sides. Uh, the, the, the reality was the KMT uh, weren't going to welcome you as allies against the Japanese. They would shoot you. Uh, and so Mao fought a war um, of um, the classic guerrilla kind that if you were outnumbered, you retreated. China's a very big country. You retreated, retreated, retreated until the enemy was sufficiently extended and sufficiently weak or worn down. And then you strike. And we know. Uh, I'm not going to the ins and outs of it, uh, but we know that he built uh, a, a red base um, and that secured him the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party or the Communist Party of China. Uh, that led to the Chinese Revolution in 1949, which was clearly a huge, huge, um, um, how should I put it, chapter in global politics in the 20th century. And indeed, you can talk about it still clearly reverberating into the uh, 21st uh, century. This is a huge uh, um, event. Okay, so what sort of party was the Communist Party of China in 1949? Well, you'd have to say, first of all, well, it did have um, its proletarian origins. It did have its uh, cadre that was educated in some sort of version of Marxism, um, albeit of a increasingly Soviet Stalinist variety. But here was a communist party um, that organized uh, peasants uh, on a mass scale um, and to use the phrase, uh, use the countryside to surround the cities and then march into the cities uh, in military uh, formation. The regime uh, of Mao 1949 is classic uh, 
what is called a people's democracy. Uh, it didn't talk about socialism. Um, uh, it uh, recognized the continuation of capitalism, peasant agriculture, multi-party uh, system. Uh, but in reality, uh, just like in Eastern Europe, um, there's a big difference between what the program said and what the reality was intended to become and what it became. Worthwhile pointing out to this day, I don't know how many parties there are in China, but there ain't just one. Uh, there's, a, there's a KMT. There's a worker and peasant party. There's a party for the bourgeoisie. Um, so it's very much um, along the lines of East Germany and other such uh, countries that although you might in the West be told that they're one party systems and in some senses, of course, they are um, not according to themselves. Though. And that's worth noting. OK, so what else do we note uh, about China? Well, of course, Mao uh, fell out with the Soviet Union and uh, initially that fallout, I think you could trace back uh, to the Great Leap Forward uh, that Mao attempted um, uh, to industrialize in double quick speed based on small industry. I mean, crazy stuff. And that led to starvation and chaos. Mao was demoted um, after that. But this was the initial falling out with the Soviet Union. So China objected, not initially, but objected to the secret speech, 56, and so-called de-Stalinization. Um, so we had the first uh, creation of what was called anti-revisionist communist parties or anti-revisionist uh, currents. And that should not be confused with later uh, Maoist organizations. I don't know about Harpal Bra, but I suspect his origins go back uh, to this original falling out in the early 60s. He's not a product of the Cultural Revolution. You can find a similar thing in India with the largest official Communist Party there, the Communist Party of India of Mar Marxist. This is not a Maoist party. It is not a party of the Cultural Revolution. It's an anti-revisionist party, anti-Khrushchev party. Either way, Mao came back uh, with the Cultural Revolution. We all know the history of that. Uh, this uproot bourgeois culture, this ban Beethoven, um, let's get rid of red lights at uh, um, on, on traffic, in, in street traffic, because <laughs> red means go, doesn't mean stop, and uh, other stuff like that. Okay, so far, so crazy. So sort of super first five-year plan. Okay, so then what happens? We have, let me get my dates. Is it 1972? Who could forget it? The meeting between Mao and Nixon. This is in a period where people on the left uh, were denouncing Nixon. This is the Vietnam War. This is uh, Nixon's, um, you know, redneck, anti-Vietnam War protest type stuff. Um, people in, on the left were denouncing Nixon as a fascist, as a Nazi. And I remember, because uh, I used to read it occasionally, the official paper of the Cuban Communist Party, Grandma, named after the the boat that took the guerrillas over there, uh, Castro, Che Guevara and all the rest of it, would have every, every time they mentioned Nixon, some poor bugger had to draw in a swastika for his um, the X 
in his name. But there you are in 1972, Nixon and Kissinger turn up and meet uh, Mao and uh, Chiang Lai, uh, the prime minister of um, um, China. And we know the results. Um, China starts to block Soviet aid uh, to Vietnam. When there's the military coup by Pinochet in um, Chile in September 1973, amazingly, amazingly, yeah, amazingly, the Chinese welcome it, welcome it. When we have the attacks on the Communist Party of um, Portugal uh, after the Portuguese Revolution in 1975, the Chinese line up, the Maoists line up in Portugal with the counter-revolutionaries, with the far right. In Turkey, uh, the Maoists line up with the Grey Wolves. So who attacked uh, the great May Day demonstration uh, in Istanbul that had a million people uh, demonstrating it? This was attacked by machine guns, you know, from buildings. Well, the Grey Wolves or and the Maoists. I mean, so this was the, this was the result of this rapprochement. Uh, between Mao and um, China. But the big turn came uh, with Deng Xiaoping, uh, that um, having been um, sent into exile, I think he worked in a car factory or something like that. I can't remember. Anyway, he, he had to go out there and work in a factory. Deng Xiaoping came back after the death of Mao Zedong and uh, having uh, officially denounced the capitalist road and the capitalist road as Khrushchev, but also Deng Xiaoping, then we had the capitalist road and uh, Deng Xiaoping, first of all, uh, decollectivized the communes. So the communes were broken down into individual uh, units. And also what we saw is Chinese, but foreign Chinese capital coming into China. And we saw capitalist uh, development um, um, in China to the point where, um, you, of course, you no longer have the iron rice bowl. Um, you no longer have secure employment. There's wage labor uh, in China. Um, clearly, there's wage slavery um, in China. Um, and that goes not just for ordinary workers in factories, that goes for high tech workers. There's been some recent articles on the super exploitation of programmers and other such high tech uh, workers, you know, working all the way around uh, the clock more or less living on the job for months on end, months and months um, on, on end. Either way, uh, we're presented uh, with a, a, an extraordinarily strange hybrid um, social uh, formation. I remember I, I'm saying here social formation rather than mode of production. You know, you asked me what the mode of production is in China and um, I would be hard pressed to answer. I mean, remember in classical Marxism, we would look at concrete societies and we use the term social formation because we recognize uh, that, for example, in a country like Britain, there isn't just capitalism. Certainly in the old Soviet Union, when um, Lenin was still around, he talked about five uh, different modes of production operating at the same time. Priyabozhensky famously talked about uh, the contradiction uh, between what he called the socialist um, emerging mode of production, the communist mode of production, uh, but also the capitalist 
uh, mode of production. And he wasn't talking about industry, he was talking about peasant agriculture. So these things are always complex. And all you can say is that China is extraordinarily uh, complex, not least because of the version of history uh, that the Chinese Communist Party um, um, promulgates. Um, what they seem to have decided um, is not to go in for some sort of demarification. So as compared with um, the Soviet Union, there's been no 1956, no process of de-Stalinification. Now that was crazy in the Soviet Union. So when I went to the Soviet Union, Stalin had ceased to exist. I mean, he's still got a little plaque um, on the, um, the red wall. Is it the red wall? Anyway, the Kremlin, the Kremlin wall. Um, so that's still there. But basically, you couldn't find a, a book or a pamphlet by Stalin. Uh, you won't find a statue except in Georgia, apparently. But he became a non-person. So the official history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, everything that good happened, according to them, the five-year plan, that was the Central Committee. Stalin uh, didn't accept maybe mistakes. So mistakes still were there, but Stalin had been expunged from history. Chinese version of history still has Mao. And uh, remember, Mao is the founder of um, the Republic. He's the leader from 1949 to when he dies. I'm being a bit, I when he died, was it in the early 80s? Being a bit risky there. I can't remember, so forgive me. Um, either way, um, he's, he's been around a long time. And then what you get is this history of continuity. This is the official version of it. So if you look at what the official ideology of the Chinese Communist Party is today, it goes along the lines of, and I can't remember it because I'd have to write it all down, but it goes along the lines of Chinese Communist Party is a Marxist-Leninists, Mao Zedong, and then it's got all the other sort of leading general secretaries like Deng, uh, and then it ends in Z thought. So it's, you know, about 10 inches long, uh, their official ideological name. All I would say is that to try to get get to grips with China. You don't simply look at China. You have to look at the, uh, the globe. You have to look at the globe in transition from capitalism to communism. You have to look at the fact that um, China, as opposed to the Soviet Union, wasn't kept isolated from the world economy, um, but was integrated in under the rules of the World Trade Organization. I think that was 1982. But by but breaking the rules, it didn't obey uh, the rules. So China didn't let uh, Western companies take over the commanding heights of uh, the Chinese economy, uh, didn't let them take over the banks. Uh, China and the Chinese state kept control. And um, so although you have um, capital from abroad in China, um, it isn't control from abroad. China has not been reduced uh, to an American uh, neo colony and that um that 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 explains at least something uh, about modern day china now whether china can continue on its present day course um i think there's a big question mark um over that um but of course history uh, will decide uh, that um whether china uh, emerges as um um the equal um, of the United States in terms of GDP, I think is questionable. Uh, whether it emerges as the world hegemon, I think is highly uh, questionable. Um, 
is China a different sort of society uh, because of its uh, long thousands and thousands of year history? Well, yes, but uh, the idea that the export of capital from China is benign, um, pull the other one. Um, that's my uh, version. It does it exploit workers? Of course uh, it does. Are the workers a slave class in China? Yes, uh, they are. Um, but as I said, I, I, I don't think that there are any easy answers to China. All I would say is what I am convinced of is that China cannot in any reasonable terms be classified as a, a workers uh, state. There's no democracy. The working class do not constitute the ruling class. They're an exploited uh, class. On the other hand, uh, China as a capitalist country, well, yes, but, 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 um, you know, um, if you look at China and one wanted to simplify it, um, I would at least draw on at least some of the writings of Priyabozhensky um, as uh, a guide, and that is to talk about one um, a capitalist mode of production existing in China. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But does the role of the state um, play a role um, that's subordinate uh, to capital accumulation and the emergence of a capitalist ruling class? I think that's highly uh, questionable. But where is China going? Quite frankly, I don't know. Uh, it would need study. Um, and the last thing Marxists uh, should do uh, is come out with uh, trite answers without having uh, studied um, uh, China. That's all.